Hello and welcome again to Comic Connoisseurs. Uh, tonight we will be continuing our series of looking into DC Comics uh, pre-crisis reboot of the 80s and uh, defending the pre-crisis reboots. Specifically, the tonight's topic will be Batman Year One, and as usual, here is our panel. First off, our co-host JT from Saskatoon. God, I hated the animated movie. And also with us is comic connoisseur Thomas Ravor. But I love the live-action version of it. <laughs> yes, and, this is true. And as always, we will first go through what's coming out. We will go through the comic solicitations brought to you by ComicList.com. Well, uh, I'm to start the list, with, you're into stellar cartography, and who isn't? You get the Star Trek Stellar Cartography Reference Library Hardcover Edition. You joke? JT, but actually, this is a this is a pretty interesting item. Tom, actually, I don't have the list in front of me. I, I, I sent the uh, here. Let me send it to you hold again. On, hold on, hold on. Send it to me via uh, the uh, one of the other IMs because I'm using. Uh, uh, there you go. Uh, there we go. But well, like I said, the the Star Trek Skeletor cartography chart is actually. Something that a lot of Trekkies would love to have. I mean, well, this is now is this? I mean, since I haven't seen this, is this uh, based off of the original Star Trek? Because they had something like this back in uh, uh, Franz Joseph's uh, Starfleet Technical Manual, or is this based off of the J.J. Uh, Abrams? I don't know what the hell I'm doing reboot. Um, it looks like it's going to be all the way to TNG era. And that's good. And yeah, I mean, I'm sure a lot of Trekkies will. Uh, not just Trekkies, but Star Trek fans will enjoy this because it is, depending upon how it's done, it can be something that is really cool. The maps include an ancient Vulcan map, a Klingon Empire map from the pre-Organan Peace Treaty era, along with Federation maps from the modern era. So I think that that's telling us quite a bit of what's going to be in here. Um, lots of, lots I'm just of not that big a, I'm just not that big a Star Trek nerd anymore. I mean... Don't get me wrong, I love Star Trek, but uh, uh, just you ever watch a movie that just you, you knew it was insulting your intelligence, but you just couldn't bring yourself to admit that it was insulting your intelligence? Are you talking about Voyager, Enterprise, or the Abrams movies? I'm talking about Star Trek Into Darkness. This isn't Khan! No, no. But it's Khan! It's Into Darkness. It is not Star Trek. <laughs> I, I, mean, anybody, very... I will not. I refuse to use those two words in conjunction with that because, I mean, I will admit the first Abrams movie, uh, I, Keith Urban, Keith Urban, Carl Urban, I, I don't know if he can do country singing or not, sold me as Doctor McCoy. He, like, oh. I, I've said all along, he's he was channeling the late great D. Kelly. Um, no, that that I totally agree. I mean, he had the crazy eyes. <laughs> And when he said green-butted hobgoblin, I actually stood up and clapped in the theater because that's that's one of my favorite, you know, knocks at Spock. Yeah. But yeah, no, it's just that second movie. It's like, no, this is space. It was space. an insult it, all the way around. I mean, it was. You know what? It made me long for Kurt. Oh, go ahead. I say they killed Kurt, and I was like, don't bring him back. Don't bring. Oh fuck you, McCoy! You had to resurrect the goddamn triple. See, I go through Super and blood. I thought. Into Darkness made me long for good Star Trek movies like Star Trek V. <laughs> okay, I know you're making fun, Tom. I know. Partially, compared to Into Darkness, Star Trek V was genius. 
It's uh, compared to that, I'd actually almost say we uh, bring on bring on the uh, insurrection. Well, I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> yeah, no, I'll I'll, gr- I'll 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 grant you I'll grant you five. Although insurrection but, did have, I mean, I know we're getting off on Star Trek stuff, but insurrection did have the wedding scene, which I thought uh, these are people who know their characters and love their characters and did the characters justice. Just the wedding scene in the beginning was worth it. The wedding scene, and though overall I wasn't a big fan of the movie, I did like F. Murray Abraham's performance. Yeah. So. So moving on this list, we have uh, some stuff from Antarctic Press, but unfortunately stuff I don't read, so I don't know if I can recommend this or not. Um, moving further down, we have, uh, you know, we have uh, World of Archie Double Digest number 34. You know, I I generally am pretty much okay with Archies, but I'm not sure about this one. I, I'm just going to keep on going down the list here. Uh, do you guys see anything that jumps out and screams, screams let's talk about me for a second? Uh, one thing immediately does for me, and it's from a company I would have never thought I would actually say I'm looking forward to something from them from, and that's Bongo Comics, the people who make The Simpsons and all the rest of uh, Matt Groening's comics. But they have Sergio Aragonese's Funnies. Yes. I mean, that in itself is worth it. That's what worth, worth Gr- more than anything. The hardest working man. Grew the Wonderer, baby. Well, and so much more. I mean, Mad, Com- Mad Magazine and, I mean... The world's fastest inker. Yeah, so oh, yeah. Mad Mag, Mad, well, actually, Mad did start as a comic. It was, it was. <laughs> well, yeah, uh, uh, we can go into the whole uh, 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 comic code thing and the. Uh, uh, I, I was just talking about him the other day. Now I can't think of the bastard's name. Um, there's lots of bastards in the Mad comics. Seduction of the Innocent. Oh, Frederick Wortham. Wortham, yes, thank you. Yes, don't read Batman and Robin, kids. Otherwise, you'll go gay. Oh, boy. And then they made it gay. Let's see here. Let's go. Yeah, Let's... but we don't talk about movies three and four. We can no, talk about talking... movies three. Was... Movie three isn't that bad. I'm talking about movies. I'm talking about movie zero. Uh, uh, you're talking about the Adam West movie. Yes. Well. Some days you can't get rid of a bomb. I know, but they put it out in the theaters anyway. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's what I was thinking when I saw that scene. I'm like, it, it, and that scene was just so campy, unrealistic, stupid. Like, here, here's a nun. I can't throw that nun. Here's a, even for the here's show. Some, here's some ducks. Can't throw that. Some ducks. It's like yeah. <laughs> I'd say, hey, quick and easy way to make press duck. Yes. Oh, <laughs> you know, and then they had you know launch the thing out in the ocean, take out the giant killer squid. So yeah. Like that's yeah, actually that was almost in Arkham City. Oh Lord! Paul Dini wrote the scene until he talked to the devs, and the dev says, "No, Paul, we can't do this." And Paul Dini's like, "Damn it!" Because what was going to happen was when Batman was fighting Tiny, you know, Penguin's pet shark. Yeah. Supposed to open up his utility belt, and there was going to be a box that says "Bat Shark Repellent." Opens it up, and there's iron knuckles he puts on and punches Tiny in the face. Oh, <laughs> Well, they, they had that, because he did punch Tiny in the face. Yeah, but, but they, didn't have, they didn't show Oh, with the, <laughs> that shark, yeah, that, that would have been a little too, I don't want to say meta, but... <laughs> That's just, you know, like, I love Dee Dee, but sometimes he goes a little too far and has to be reined in. 
Oh, no, I mean, that would have been a great throw. Uh, shout out to us old timers that remember this <laughs> stuff. Dini's one of us, so, you know, one of us. <laughs> one of us. Gobble, gobble, one of us. But, uh, no. Further down the list, uh, we have uh, Boom Studios, the uh, let's, we want to be IDW, but we have no talent. Or Although, they do have the, the uh, they're selling some San Diego Comic-Con variant of the first issue of Six-Gun Gorilla, which the title alone should, if anybody loves weird kind of out there comics, they would love this title. See, I mean, titles don't do it unless it's got something behind it. Back in the black and white explosion of the uh, late 80s, there was one great indie comic called Dinosaurs for Hire. Oh, God, yes. And so, I mean, Six Gun Gorilla, it may get my attention, but it's got to have something there. And just uh, titles don't do it, but some do. And they, I mean, I also see that Boom has uh, is got penis number fourteen, uh, which says, uh, "Let's go back to something somebody that actually had humor and quality." Yeah. <clears throat> so let's see here. We have uh, some Dark Horse comics. I'm just reading Hal here. Uh, Empowered. Empowered Volume Eight. God, by, I love that series. By our friend Adam Warren. Um, I, let's go back a little bit because Dark Horse has got something out called Captain Midnight, uh, issue number six. And I can't help but wonder, is this the famous Captain Midnight of the radio shows in the 40s? And looking at the cover, it might be. I think it is. I think they have the, I read some, they had the rights, but this is like a kind of sort of a modern day reimagining. Which I'll have to take a look at it. I mean, I'm I'm an old fan of the old, well, I am an old fan, but I'm also a fan of the old radio programs. uh, And Captain Midnight is one of the ones that I was enjoying. Now, I didn't hear them originally, folks. I'm not that old, but I did hear the uh, uh, taped versions. So here's... Uh, so what's this going on with this new Conan the Barbarian series? Because I got I got some questions about this because I don't know. Well, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm seeing a trade paperback of Savage Sword, and I mean, is that reprints from the Marvel stuff? From this, uh, I think it is. Uh, yeah, Darker Chuck still Dixon, has the reprint. Yeah, Andy Kubert... Ernie Chan. So, yeah, it looks like these are the reprints of the stuff from, yep, showcasing stories from Marvel's Savage Sword of Conan the Barbarian, numbers uh, 151 through 160. Mm. And that was quality stuff. I mean, it was after Roy Thomas left, but it was still damn good stuff. Mm. Yes, it's... Uh, okay, I've... now, they do have one thing on here that I, it's, it's noticeable, notable just because of what it is. They have a comic here called Never Ending, and it's issue number two of three. <laughs> well, it's probably like the Never Ending story. Yeah, but it ends. It's a limited series. <laughs> it, it doesn't look like it's it's a uh, it's a superhero thing. Looking at the cover, and uh, it's, it doesn't really strike me because when I see his title, I, I picture a fantasy title when I hear Never Ending. Not yeah. No. Hellboy. Oh lord. Okay. That that oh. one's it's it's if you like like you said you you like Charlie Brown. There's it's a Charlie Brown esque Hellboy comic and it's kind of, if you like stuff like Tiny Titans or Patrick the Wolf Boy, there there is just kind of a simple old school humor to it. It's except they keep using the joke of uh, Roger the homunculus losing his uh, iron waistband and everyone wearing it like a hat. Until they realize it's his underwear. 
Lovely. Hey. But no, but like you said right off there, Ben, empowered. I mean, it's honestly, I, I got into this because of Adam Warren's art. And initially I was just like, oh, it's just, you know, sexy, fun comics. But there's there's actually, once you read the first couple of volumes, there's actually a decent enough story in there. So. I love Adam Warren and I love his storytelling. I mean, back when he was doing Dirty Perry, he was awesome there too. Damn right. But, so let's see here. Um, let's skip all these Star Wars pieces of crap and uh, get to the big piece of crap. Now you're being pretty bad on crap there. Is there anything worth getting in this? In this? In can we just skip DC for a while? Batman well, sixty six. I what? was just going to say, let's completely reboot so we've got all new characters out of the old characters because we can't have anything from the old characters, but let's make money by bringing back old characters. DC, get your head out of your nether regions and start creating quality again. Yeah, but honestly, the, the only thing, well, not the only thing, but the only thing I see on the list that I would recommend is you know the new issue of Batman 66 because it's, it's good. Like, the I... Bought the because I had a couple of bucks on my Comicsology account. I bought the first couple of like uh, digital issues, and it's okay. It's I rather wait for the hard copies, but it's like reading an episode of the Batman '66 show. And if you're a fan of it, like I am, it's you'll love it. <laughs> besides, besides the, I'm not really like I love Mike Allred, but I I read the first few issues of the new FF, and I was like, you know what? If I need a Mike Allred fix. <laughs> Um, well, I'm happy buying the Batman 66 series. I think I'll wait till next week. Same bat time, same bat channel. <laughs> so uh, uh, there's actually one thing on there that I do see that uh, just because, again, one thing makes it interesting. I won't buy it because I, DC's on my boycott list, but uh, they have two copies, two different covers on Harley Quinn number one. And now, the, both 252 them... Harley has been, uh, I'm sorry, I loved Paul Dini's Harley Quinn. I mean, you can tell that him and Bruce Tim loved the character. Everybody loved that Harley Quinn. I don't want to see slutty Harley, but these two different covers, one is done by Adam Hughes. I mean, how can you pass up an Adam Hughes cover? And the other one's Amanda Connor. How can you pass up an Amanda Connor cover? Exactly right. Well, now, of course I'm going to, but <laughs> if I had to take one, I'd probably take the Amanda Connor cover just because, well, there's a certain cuteness, to her slutty Harley, and it's not unlike uh, Giselle and you know Menage Three. Yeah. <laughs> so, which but, I gotta I gotta start reading that again. I've fallen off that for so long. <laughs> it's got it's gotten stranger and stranger. She's uh, doing crossovers with some of her other series again. I was beginning to wonder if that was gonna happen. Yeah, but the one thing that that I find fucking hilarious is is Teen Titans Go number one because. I find this hilarious because Teen Titans Go was what they called the original comic series based off of the crappy show when the crappy show was still running. And then when they rebooted the crappy show as a super deformed, stupid show, even stupider than the original show, they called that the new show Teen Titans Go. So there's two Teen Titans Go series historically in DC Comics. Now, I like the title, but they need to change the punctuation there. It should be Teen Titans, Go, period. Teen Titans go <laughs> go away yes I, there's, right. no, there's uh, nothing else on this list which i would even i mean they couldn't pay me to, i mean justice league of america's vibe i mean, this was the justice league detroit and i don't know what they've done to reboot them for the new 52 but it's basically well 
our experiment with the new Blue Beetle that we killed off Ted Cord for failed because it's not a good Hispanic character. So let's bring back another Hispanic character. We've got to have that checkbox marked. Yeah. I read, like, the first issue of this series, and they basically... He got caught in the event horizon of a boom tube, and now he's, like, sensitive to fluctuations in the dimensional fabric or some bullcrap like that. All I, the, the Oh, God. Just thinking about that makes me ill. The only other thing I see one comic on here, Ben, that I can use to perpetuate a big old whammy. In fact, I could possibly scar some fellow comic book readers for life. Okay. The cover to Supergirl 26. I am afraid to look. It's with the Twilight Lobo. I mean, Edward. I mean, the new Lobo. Is he wearing a suit? Yeah, well, okay. Now, I only know this because I I collected the entire run of the new 52 Deathstroke, mainly because it was Joe Bennett art, and I'm a big fan. But I even collected the issues where uh, Mr. uh, What's-His, no sense of anatomy whatsoever, Liefeld, (laughs) was doing the arts, and they had the quote-unquote classic Lobo. And then... A few months ago, they said, well, that was a fake Lobo. This is the new 52 Lobo. He's svelte, he's built, he's all sexy looking, and this is the real Lobo for a new generation. My dear God, I cried. Let's move on. But I'm just saying, I can show people this cover and probably get some tears. So, Dynamite Entertainment, of course, they still have some Dynamite stuff here. You know, Mark Wade's Green Hornet. And, uh, go ahead. Yeah, I'm agreeing, I mean... I, I, back to the same stuff we talked about last time. I mean, all the uh, REH stuff. Uh, I mean, Deja Thoris, Warlord of Mars. Red Sonja. Uh, Red so- well, Red Sonja isn't REH. Actually, Red Sonja was Roy Thomas. I know, but i got to bring up Red Sonja. But it's, it's the Conan universe, so. Um, Lady Rawhide, which was an interesting character, a, a spinoff from the uh, Lone Ranger when they had the Lone Ranger. Um, yeah, there's a, a bunch of stuff there that looks interesting. By Regisonia. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Let's uh, see here. Don't, uh, IDW? Yeah. Oh, well. actually, uh, Hermes Press, and I've got to look at... Oh, 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 I see. I see it. Yep. I mean, if you want to look at classic, classic stuff, uh, Hermes Press, it looks to be reprinting a bunch of old stuff. I'm, I'm, and the one they've got out this week is Buck Rogers in the 25th Century. I, these are the old Buck Rogers strips. Well, not okay. too old. This is late 70s, early 80s, uh, the Grey Morrow years. But, I mean, Hermes Press also is doing uh, reprints of the Phantom strips. Um, they've got some stuff for Joy, uh, for James Bond. They were doing reprints of the Roy Rogers stuff. I uh, mean, this is Bread to Star. This is, it's, again, classic stuff. Yeah. Yep, well, yippee Mr. Falcone. <laughs> but, oh. uh, yeah, on to IDW. I, I do, I do. JT will get that when when Roy Rogers. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. other people's properties again. Let's see here. GI Joe. Ghost other people's Pist- properties done right. Yes. Oh, speaking of the the whole kids, tiny, you know. Oh little, God, no, Ben, no, no. Oh my God. Yeah. Uh, actually, that the, Tom, the way you said that reminded me of Trolls too. <laughs> Oh, the greatest worst movie ever. <laughs> yes. <laughs> they're eating her! And then they're going to eat me! Yeah, they're oh gonna, my uh, god! <laughs> kiss uh, kids. This is frightening. <laughs> oh god. 
one thing I gotta say that I actually am dreading is the Mr. Peabody and Sherman. The movie? Oh, I watched well, I mean, that Because all the other Jay Ward properties turned into live-action movies did so well, uh, not counting George of the Jungle. The first one. <laughs> the first anyhow. one. The first one. Me knew George. Couldn't afford Brent, Brendan Fraser again. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I'm going to say this. That first movie was perfectly cast. Yep. I mean, Love come it. on. John, John Cleese is ape. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, the uh, Mr. Peabody and Sherman. Oh, yeah. Mars Attacks Judge Dredd. Based off that, the old just on the title alone, I want to buy that. So it's based oh, sorry, off of you the, the old comic tops? Names. Sorry, you go, Ben. Yes, it is. It is based off of the old tops. Oh, my God, that's awesome. Yeah. I'm going to say, okay, so you won't read a comic. A comic named Six Gun Gorilla doesn't capture your attention, but Mars Attacks Judge Dredd. It's because, because of Mars the old... Attack was, I hated Mars Attacks, but, I mean, it, it, just the concept of combining that with Judge Dredd, the two properties were made for each other. It tops because because Mars Attacks was a trading card series by Tops, and it's turned into a crappy movie by uh, you know, Tim Burton. Yeah, Tim Burton. But the thing is, the reason why I know about it is because of because Wally Wood was involved in that. I mean, the artwork on him was beautiful. It's just that it, it was definitely a period a product of his time. Yeah, like I said, Wally Wood was involved in that. I mean, some of Wood's best work was the Mars Attacks trading cards. Yeah. And then, that was I mean, the IDW Popeye Classics and, uh, uh, let's see, uh, Tarzan Classics, I mean, newspaper strips. I mean, this is stuff that, if you want to get into comics or write or create comics, this is stuff you should be reading. Forget the image comic era. I mean, read some of the quality stuff like the old Tarzan, the old uh, Buck Rogers and Flash Gordon. Prince I mean, Valiant. The Phantom, Prince Valiant, uh, I mean, even stuff like Brenda Starr. I mean, that was comic creation at its finest. Oh, boy, yeah. No, I don't disagree. I mean, first Tarzan was the old, like, DC Joe Kubert Tarzan. Oh, yeah. John yeah. Carter of Mars and all that. Well, let, let's 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 settle this right now. Is it Kubert or Kubert? Kubert. I've always heard Kubert. Okay. Kubert it's... is the one that has profanity and typing symbols. <laughs> All right, so moving on to image. I don't see anything I like in image, and uh, nope, nothing, nothing. Okay, this def- this title here definitely it says it screams image comic. Well, it, if it had one other thing, it would scream image comic. Sex. Yeah, sex number nine. Sex. Uh, that's an image comic title right there. All it needs is the word blood in there somewhere, and it would be the image comic. Sex and blood. Sex and yeah. blood. Yes. Or blood sex. Uh, don't they no, also have a you. comic called Sex Criminals? Yes, they do. Yep. All right, let's let's move on. Marvel Comics, Amazing Spider-Man seven hundred dot four and dot five. Yeah, I don't know who they're fooling. A, yeah, see, I saw that in the solicits. I was like, oh, they're bringing Peter back already, and it's basically a, it's like a, a past tale of Spider-Man. Like they could have done this as like a two issue mini or something like that, and they just spread it out over like a five week period. To sort of troll readers. Yeah, basically. And I fell for it, I'll admit it. I fell for it. Well, it's, it's a decent story, it's just... Really, guys? <laughs> and then there's Scarlet Spider, the last issue. Yeah, I mean, let's bring back uh, one of the worst characters in existence. Mexico! From, well, I was going to say from the Clone Saga. Oh. Uh, and uh, 
Oh, God. Let's give him his own comic. Well, they improved the character, believe it or not, because I've been reading that one. Because his whole thing is basically, okay, I keep on failing. I want to stop failing. Why am I still failing? I suck at this. Why am I trying to be a hero? I suck at this. Okay, well, I'm really bad at this. That is the perfect ending because the comic apparently failed. <laughs> that, but that is the story of Kane Parker in, in Scarlet Spider is he's going around failing every time he tries to do anything. It's like failing, 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 failing. <laughs> That's his whole story. He keeps on failing. Yep. Um, starring Mexico. <laughs> okay, so moving down. Moving I'm just down. waiting to see how long. I mean, I was reading about Marvel's reboot saga and where they're going to go with a bunch of number ones again. Less said about that, the better. Less done about that, but worse. So let's see here. We have. Um... Oh, Orion. Oh. Asterix, Asterix and the Picts hard copy. I mean, I, 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 I'm the one pointing out all the classic stuff. Asterix, and that is not the uh, star symbol above the eight key on your keyboard. This it's is a, ast- not Asterisk. This is Asterix. He's a Viking. Yeah, it's a French comic. Uh, well, about the Vikings. Yeah, I mean, great, great, great stuff. Great stuff. Huh. I mean, to me, that it, it's, Asterix is on the level of Tintin. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree. I mean, I only had a few of the books in grade school, but I remember reading those. Yeah, not the movie, but the original strips by Harrogate. The real Tintin. Yes. But right. I mean, they've got some other things out. Uh, I'm looking now, I mean, Panini Publishing, who is best known for cards, uh, publishing Doctor Who magazine. Always a good thing. Um, NBM, Fairy Tales of Oscar Wilde. Okay. Mm. You know, Oscar Wilde had a club foot, right? How much did it cost to enter? Oh, fuck. Well played. (laughs) Oh, boy. I I think we're pretty much done with the solicitation part of the show. I mean, I'm seeing other things, uh, you know, in Valiant coming out with uh, some what used to be good stuff I don't know about now. Um, Zenoscope coming out with their usual TNA off of public properties. (laughs) But they do it so well. Well, I don't know about that. Well, depending on the artist, they do it so well. It's image comics by people who actually know what anatomy is. (laughs) All right. So uh, this was our solicitations part of the show. Uh, We'll take a quick break. And when we're back, we will talk to you about the topic, which will be Batman Year One by Frank Miller. It's time for intermission, boys and girls. Like animation? Come listen to Animation Aficionados. And if you disagree with us, you could be a guest on a future show. Available on iTunes, the Zune Market, and AnimationAficionados.com. Hey, I'm Gary. I'm Mike. I'm Chuck. And I'm Justin. Join the four of us every week on the Internet's number one and longest-running G.I. Joe podcast, What's on Joe Mind? It's Joe News, reviews, and interviews like you've never heard them before, delivered right to your MP3 player. Our guests include Jason Marsden, Kevin Michael Richardson, and Matt Yang King from G.I. Joe Renegades, Larry Hama, Robert Atkins, and John Barber from IDW Publishing, and many more from around the online Joe community. Yeah, it's guys talking about Joe. Think of it as Joe Talk meets Sports Talk. And we make fun of Chuck. Right, and we pay again. Come on, Chuck. We're just 
kidding, kinda. Sometimes Chuck makes fun of himself. Right, and we... Okay, seriously, this is just getting ridiculous now. It's What's On Joe Mind, every week on the GeekCast Radio Network, InsidePulse.com, Stitcher Smart Radio, and iTunes. Download and listen today. I suppose I still can't say something about Transformers, can I? Good on, No. What about sports? That sounds yeah, good. Yeah, that's all right. It's action. It's drama. It's comedy. It's to see in the superhero webcomic. The CN has superhero antics and sexy girls. Catch updates weekly at thecn.com and nosuperpants.com. And now, back to the show. And we're back to discuss the topic of the show today, which is Batman Year One. Uh, written by uh, Frank Miller. Before he went crazy. Back when it was good. I think this started showing the beginnings of crazy, but it's not really that strong or noticeable yet. He can still pass as normal in society. Yeah. Actually, he looked a lot like Ray Romano back then. Boy, that's an insult. To Ray Romano. <laughs> to Frank Miller. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not kidding. It's He did back then. He really did. It, uh, but, uh, but really, Batman Year One is... The post-crisis DC reboot of Batman, and one of the uh, more interesting ones out there. And uh, what made it work was a combination of different elements, uh, especially when uh, when you have someone like Frank Miller looking at all the stuff that's in the continuity, and just like with with Superman and Wonder Woman, there was a lot of stuff so it kind of went back to basics bit more or less well actually that's a very good point because a lot of what he drew from um, is you know either you know is a lot from from detective comics uh 27 i believe back in the i mean way back in the back in the beginnings yeah back when you know when when bob kane originally created the dark knight the he was a very broody broody fellow and he used to carry two two uh pistols on his belt but uh, that's a different story well so did the phantom back then and the the shadow and several others it's it was just a thing back then oh and they still do but that's a different story yes and yeah, the uh, the original imagery for for the original Batman was based off of uh, this is how it's told to me, but based off of Leonardo da Vinci's uh, flying machine sketches. Right, uh, that was that's one of the main stories of uh, the origin of Batman and Bat, plus a movie called The Bat, as well as drawing off of Shadow. I mean, there's a lot of all of that wrapped into it. Yeah, and Zorro. Maybe not so much with this story, but certain elements I think they took from Zorro with like you know the hidden entrance to the cave and all that, and yes. the homage which they have always had because until recent years it was always uh, the Waynes were shot coming out of a movie theater where they took young Bruce to see a Zorro movie. I believe yeah. it was the Mark of Zorro. Well, it's changed. So, I mean, it depends upon the era. You know what? I will kill myself the moment Bat Continuity is rebooted to where he's inspired by Antonio Banderas. Now, I mean, I actually like... Um, when we talk about year one, we can't help but talk about 
what is probably the best adaptation of year one, and I'm not talking that animated piece of crap, but Batman Begins. Oh, God, yeah. Using, I'm changing it from the Mark of Zorro or whatever Zorro movie it was to an opera like Dick Liedermaus. It's, I mean, that's brilliant. And that is more in staying with the Waynes. Well, yeah, with the, the imagery and all that. And for the one thing I loved about that scene in Batman Begins is the guy that's like on the rope in the bat mask for some reason took me back to like Nightfall where Bruce Wayne has gone to Lady Shiva and he's getting retrained in his martial arts, you know, to find his, you know, getting his mojo back and he's walking around in like the, it was a similar looking costume is just kind of triggered that memory. How he's walking around like a ninja outfit with this Tengu mask. Yeah. It actually brought me back to, uh, uh, a classic Batman story talking about the first Batman back before DC went completely off the rails and had Batman through the eras, you know, like, Oh yeah. Bat caveman. I mean, no, um, the first Batman was actually Thomas Wayne. Oh yeah. With the, the huge, like you know, the bat ear mask and the cape, the, the wing cape that was like stuck up like that. Yeah. No, I it's remember like, that. And I, uh, that was what led to, it was uh, his assassination wasn't just Joe Chill being a thief, but Joe Chill was an assassin uh, who was hired by Lou Moxon, I believe, uh, to kill the Waynes because at that costume party, Thomas Wayne stopped a robbery from Lou Moxon, sending him to jail. Yes, and then it was kind of that whole subconscious thing with that and then the bat flying through the study windows and landing on the bust. Was the bust of his dad or just like a bust in general? Yeah. Yeah, but the, where the bat falls and that, because actually that the quick aside, the untold legend of Batman, like that uh, was that Jim Aparo, I think, did the art on that, which yes. is one of my favorite Batman stories, which I think it came out post-crisis, but before no, that was walk- pre-crisis. That was pre-crisis? I believe that was pre-crisis because it did draw on a lot of the uh, uh, Batman mythos that was pre-crisis, in, yeah. especially the costume, because they didn't have the, co- the bat costume post-crisis, the Thomas at, Wayne costume. At least not right. I know later on they brought that in in some respect, but yeah, no, that the whole thing, like the origin as they get into it in year one is, like, they kind of talk of it in passing. Now, like I said, this is before, you know, Frank Miller went completely out into left field. I mean, he's maybe rocking the boat at this point, but he's not entirely, he hasn't entirely gone cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. And I love one of the things that as years have gone on that I the more I read the story and the more I got into like pulp fiction, you know, pulp heroes like the shadow, like the phantom or just detective noir. I love like how much of that is just dripping off the page with this story. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, it was definitely a throwback to the uh, the, the pulp heroes and the uh, uh, the noir scene of you know, of a uh, um, Humphrey Bogart yeah, type movie, but or, I mean, you know, so, as much as the story is, I mean, we can't go without mentioning the absolutely beautiful artwork of David Kelly as well. Yeah, and I mean, okay, there there is about what, two things that I like about the animated movie, just to get the nice stuff out of the way, because I'm sure we'll bitch more about it later. Yeah. Uh, like Public Enemies, I like the effort they put in, with the animators put in to kind of emulate uh i can't pronounce the la- artist's last name to save my life Magically. but yeah like how they emulate his art style 
Because, like, you, you look at, like, say, the page in the first issue where uh, Gordon is meeting Commissioner Loeb. And one other thing I like them is that Joe Polito, who was a Gideon, the pawn shop owner in the Crow movie, is the first role of his that comes to mind when I think about like I love his voice it was perfect for Loeb in the film and but you look in that art like how they get like the little you know the the lines in people's faces or just the thickness of somebody like you know uh Detective Flass and, you know stuff like that it's just I love how the animation there did very well emulate his art style and well then there was the Catwoman short that came on the DVD but that's another th- beast entirely mm-hmm. But yeah, just the whole detective noir thing of the story, like, you know, the the narration is probably my favorite bit overall is like, you know, you get Bruce's narration, you get Jim Gordon's narration, like that whole scene where Detective Flass is smacking around some street punks and, you know, how Gordon's going on about, you know, it's like, know your facts before you bring another cop down and, and that's something that was so great about detective noir and Pulp Fiction is how you get these little lines that hit at this larger backstory. But like detective noir, they only give you enough what you need to know for this story. Well, and it gave such a depth to the characters. I mean, Bruce Wayne, you know, parents were killed. He went off, studied and became Batman. But uh, Jim Gordon, you know, all we, most people know him as Commissioner Gordon. But here, Bruce Wayne, I mean wasn't just the, I'm going to hole up in the uh, mansion and then a bat flies in. It, what, we see a lot of the torture that was in his soul as well. And Jim oh, yeah. Gordon, I mean, Jim Gordon was from Chicago who transferred to Gotham, I mean, the worst location of ever, because of a scandal that he had in Chicago. He wasn't Lily White. He had stains on himself, and he was trying to redeem himself. Yeah. And then, like, they have, uh, later on, they have where uh, Flass is uh, talking to Commissioner Loeb and telling him how Gordon's, like, trying to be, like, he's trying to be, like, this ramrod straight and all that, and he's lecturing the squad on, you know, ethics and all that. And it's just such a classic North thing where Loeb's leaning back. He's like, I had such hopes for the boy. Oh, yeah. Commissioner Loeb, uh, one of these characters that, and, and I'm back, by the way. <laughs> that uh, really was one of these add-ons that really helped, you know, sort of give a good picture of the corruption because, because before, before Loeb was really ironed out, you know, there, there was just, there was just, you know, a sort of like a, a bullet list that Gotham is corrupt. Okay. How corrupt. And, and, and I think characters like, Commissioner Loeb really sort of helped cement how this corruption ran and how deep it was. Yeah, and and it's something that like they talk about in like the Nightwing comics years later, how they talk in Bloodhaven. It's the the corruption starts at the top and trickles down, and is c- not quite the same here. Is a little more you know it goes from the street and goes up, but it's just that it's something that's a great part of Batman is that no one character is completely innocent to like one degree or another and you like you have the bad guy or the good guys are almost as bad as the bad guys in the respect that Loeb and Flass are cops I mean they're very very corrupt cops but they're still technically the law so it was a it was a very strong echoing of I mean because I know Miller loves to delve into a lot of the history for some of his stuff and this was very um uh prohibition era Chicago style where (laughs) there was nobody who was clean yeah like, yeah, and, I mean, even, sorry, you go, Ben. 
Yeah, and that's the thing is 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 Gordon himself wasn't such a Boy Scout. I mean, he had his own issues from the departments he came from that that made it to where the only place he could get a job was Gotham. Even you know the beginning the the beginning uh, uh, monologue that he had was that he that keeps on telling himself it's either this or pumping gas. Yeah, but I mean there was just so much that went into it. I mean a lot of it, I was the angles a lot of it, it Matthew Kelly's art I mean I, I think if they had a different artist even Miller himself it would not have turned out as well as year one did uh the Absolutely color not. the color was a not just a muted color scheme but a limited color palette they were using on this so and also they're kind of rough too when you you kind of look at it it's oh that's that's one of the things that's so beautiful about year one is the art is so rough and the inks are so stark and thick and in some cases almost abstract like there's this beginning panel where where Bruce is kicking a tree and the and the inks are just so rough it's because it's it's the kind of inks that I kind of want to go yeah that's the kind of inks I want to do well it, it, it you know it denotes like you know the impact and the force that he's bringing against the tree and all that yeah yeah that's and one of the things, like, yeah... That's the one. Yeah. And uh, in the comic, like, I just got it... I got the digital on my comicsology here. Uh, a couple pages after that, where Bruce, you know, gets into his makeup, and he's going out in the town to kind of recon, and then they have the whole... Like I said, I love the narration. Is they have, like, where Gordon gets the beat down, and I love how they... And it's towards the end, I hear a familiar chuckle, flass. And it's like, oh, shit, son, you fucked up. Because you know Gordon's going to do something with that. Yeah. And then, but speaking about the color and like the art, uh, there's the the pimp that starts smacking around Holly a couple pages on. I love how he, uh, can you just say the artist's name again, uh, Tom? Cause I it's, 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 it's hard to pronounce. Yeah. But how uh, the pimp has got like the white skin and the kind of off purple suit. And it's, I don't know if he meant it to, to be kind of a proto Joker like that. But it, it's kind it's kind of like that first encounter with a quote-unquote villain. And then, you know, all the hookers start beating up on Bruce and Selena gets into it. Oh, boy. Let, let, you know, let's get this out of the way, Tom. Yeah, that's probably one of the worst things I I thought was with what year one was. The uh, retconning of Selena Kyle. I mean, Catwoman from a thrill seeker from a stewardess who suffered a head injury to the different origins to being a prostitute. It wasn't necessary for the story. Yeah. Although to be I fair, think, she barely was in it. Yeah. Although yeah, I think is, it was, you or Ben had mentioned previous, we're talking previously how maybe she wasn't a prostitute per se, or she was just, no, she was, or well, yeah. was, was it you or the Ben had said, or Tom had put the theory for that. Maybe she was pretending to be a prostitute just so she could rob her Johns or something like that. But yeah, it's uh, that, that whole sequence where, you know, it's kind of like that almost Bruce hitting a rock bottom in a way in order for him to, uh, okay. Yeah, I guess that she was a hooker, <laughs> but yeah. it's just that like that scene is just with Bruce getting beat up by the whores and all that and getting arrested. It's kind of like him hitting rock bottom in ordering in order for him to find his true path. Yeah. So, 
which is kind of, I guess kind of you need, kind of need your hero to you know hit bottom like that so absolutely and uh, <coughs> and really I, I, what what yeah. made uh, go ahead Tom I was gonna say I mean yeah I mean the echoings that we had from Matt to Batman Begins I mean uh, like the Commissioner Loeb which was used in Batman Begins um, and of course the Dark Knight um, Flash who was completely different in look from year one year one he was uh, he looked like the he was Ivan Drago basically yeah, yeah he was he was the quarterback who was used to do, getting things his way I mean tall blonde handsome muscular as opposed to Batman Begins as that uh, greasy guy since Bobby from Sons of Anarchy so yeah he's like I think maybe the reason they went with that casting in Batman Begins is they're trying to play off of like the what fans might have that preconception of off of Detective Bullock. Yeah, but I mean, you know, something like that. a lot of Bullockish, but Bullock always had at least had some redeeming values. Yeah, but yeah, no, it's the, the, the whole thing, and then like we, you know, Bruce gets bits up, but probably my favorite part of this first issue, or at least one of my favorite bits with Gordon is. You know, he almost gets run off the road by Bruce as Bruce is hightailing it back to Wayne Manor. I'm sure the rest of the guy no way, no way to treat a Porsche. Yeah. And then just the, the art again, and, and like I said, the narration of Gordon waiting for this poker game to break up, and he's waiting for Flass. And I, I love the line where he's like, he's big, Green Beret training. It's been 15 years since I've had to take out a Green Beret. Even so, he deserves a handicap. And he gives him a ball bat. That was like... Are you stupid? And then the art, you know, how you see how it doesn't matter if Flash had a bat or not. Gordon just works him, exactly. which was so good. He wanted to he wanted to show that, okay, you want to mess me up? You want to threaten my wife? I, I'll, I'll, I'll do worse than that. Oh, yeah. But, yeah, that's – sorry. It was an now. echoing back again because uh, Miller loves to echo some of the stuff to um, the mud pit in Dark Knight Returns. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there was – there was some injuries there, but I mean that was Gordon's fight, both against the uh, criminals uh, and the uh, darkness, which was within himself. Yeah, and and this is all basically in the same night too. It's like they beat up Gordon, go to that poker game, and then Gordon you know, rests up and he comes after Flash. Is like, well, let's go. So, but yeah, and again, it's kind of like in a lot, like a lot of detective noir fictions, you know, like thing. Uh, of all the detective offices all the world, why'd she have to walk into me? Which invariably leads to the quote-unquote hero getting his ass handed to him, usually several times over. Yeah, and uh, in a lot of the in a lot of the early gadgets that you know the most the most spectacular gadget that Batman has is the is the shoe bat call. I mean. Everything else is pretty much realm of reality kind of stuff, and except for that, everything else is everything else is. Oh, I could see someone getting equipment like that somehow, get some sort of chemical something or other to be the poison. And oh yeah, like his epi gun injector there that he takes out the limousine drivers with. Yeah, hey, but uh, and that actually brings me up to. Uh, to you know, just like Tom was saying earlier about how much uh, Batman Begins was based off of Year One. I mean, the, the, that still that had the exact same bat call in his shoe, and 
that's one of my that that was actually one of my favorite uh, scenes in Batman Year One was the cloud of bats coming into the dawn and just oh yeah just just that image of all the bats like a plague of locusts basically yeah and it in it's stuff like that that you know of Bat, Batman explains in his monologue what the device is how it works and so it's not completely out of left field but. But to the general public, it's like, oh my god, this, this guy is like mystical magic. What 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 the hell? Yeah, and that was always – that's one of the things I liked about the way that Miller handled it. There's a difference between – I mean, Bruce Wayne – because they had him going around uh, undercover as uh, – I mean, originally dressing like a uh, – A vet. Vet. Uh, and he was just a guy. But when the costume goes on – then he becomes something more. I mean, I got him echoing Batman Begins. He became <laughs> a mythos unto himself. It, it wasn't a guy in a costume. It was every dark thing which ever haunted the shadows. He was the bump in the night. And yeah. another great scene in this was when uh, was when Flash was telling his version of, of Batman beating him up. And he says he shot, you know, he says that a drug dealer shot at Batman from point blank with a magnum passed right through him and did nothing. We get to see what actually happens as it hits, goes through his cape after he lands on a, a car hood and, <laughs> and stuff like that. Because it was sort of, it was sort of making the mythos make sense while at the same time, from the point of view of a really scared, corrupt cop. Well, and uh, I just posted a uh, link to y'all for one of the pictures from the pages. It wasn't just, yeah, uh, I mean, Bat scared me like Batman Begins did. I understand why they did it that way. Or the bat flying through the window. The whole thing with the bat came through when he was, after he had gone out in as his vet, got the crap beat out of him, got stabbed, got shot, and he's back in the mansion bleeding to death. And he says, I mean, I'm, I'm failing. I can't do this. I need something to make me more. And that's when the bat flies through the window, and that's when he calls Alfred to patch him up. Yes. In the character of Alfred, I'm 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 actually very sorry to say it, but Alfred really isn't fleshed out in Year One at all. He makes snarky comments, which is always enjoyable, but but it's later it's later writers and some earlier writers that really fleshed out the Alfred that I love. Yeah, they made yeah. hints as to some of his background that he had medical training in the military. Yeah, uh, well, I, and they had the echoes of that, and again in Batman Begins. Well, in B- Batman Begins and and the other Nolan films, they actually outright, without saying, this guy was MI6. They they pretty much say it without saying it because remember was talking about when he was working in Burma looking for the jewel thief. Yeah, I mean, what, what what's a, what's a normal soldier soldier doing looking for a jewel thief that is looking for jewels to buy off local warlords and chieftains? No, he's not. You sent you sent a double O to do that. Yeah, it, yeah. There were so many things that came into this, where it, whether it just be hints or outright telling. Like I said, I mean, I understand why Miller didn't do that much with Alfred. This wasn't Alfred's story. This that's was true. Jeff Gordon, and this was Bruce Wayne. That that's you're absolutely right. That's true. But the the one thing that I love is is really. You know, and, and like I said, I understand why there isn't the fleshing out of Alfred here, but I just love Alfred when properly fleshed out of being this this paternal figure to Bruce Wayne, this tempering figure that 
he really needed because the thing is if you, if you strip away that kind of calming influence and guidance all you're left with is is a psychopathic young man with a lot of money yeah i mean i will say that i know this is going to come back to haunt me in the future but that was one thing about batman and robin i liked was the relationship which they had between alfred and the george clooney bruce wayne you could see, I mean, he was the surrogate father for Wayne. And that was probably the only good thing in that movie. Oh, yeah. Well, I'd argue Alicia Silverstone, but I've had a crush on uh, her for she, forever. She was getting a little chunky around then. Nothing wrong with that. <laughs> Just saying. But, uh, like, one of the things uh, in the, like, one of the major sequen- sequences in this story is where Batman... You know, uh, where Gordon has been trying to leave these things to, you know, bust Batman because, you know, he's a vigilante and how dare he do this in my city. And, you know, he corners him in this uh, tenement building and Loeb's like, okay, enough's enough. And he sends in this psychotic SWAT team who are basically run by Brayden. Yeah. Who I'm pretty sure their motto was shoot first, never ask questions. And uh, like they have the sequence where, you know, they drop like a fuel air bomb on the building and in the ensuing fire, Batman's belt catches on fire. And this is one of my favorite. You've seen in dozens of stories over the years in any number of comics or movies where the hero's main cache of, you know, gags, uh, gadgets and gags are taken out. And he's left with like six things. And I mean, in this case, he's left with like three, a couple of knockout darts, some of his mini batarangs. And the... no, he had none of the batarangs. All, all he, had... he had. I thought he had no, some he had, of the darts in his glove or something. No, all he had was was a blow blowgun in his boot, um, lockpick in his glove, and that's about yeah. it. And and the and the and the bat call in his boot. And a gas grenade or something. Yeah, and one gas pellet. Yeah, and I I love the sequence. It's like one of those things where you know he's going from shadow to shadow and he's picking them off one by one. And, you know, he's basically, he's hooped. He is almost completely dead to rights at this point. And what does he do? He pretty well sacrifices himself to, to save, save a this, cat. Save a cat. And one of my favorite sequences is, is like after he knocks out a support column and he takes out a number of the cops and he zeroes in on the one asshole <laughs> who shot at the cat and punches him through a solid brick effing wall. <laughs> No, he says, you, you're the one who tried to shoot the cat. Yeah, and then it's boom. It's like, you know what? I've been, you know, in knocked through a couple pieces of drywall a time or two, just messing around with friends. Like, it's not like paper, but it still kind of hurts. But I mean, Batman was so pissed off. He's like, just pardon my French, says, fuck you. And he boot fucks this guy through a wall. I love that shit. And then the bats come down on everybody, and they're like, oh, son of a bitch. <laughs> and I love the line, uh, never never have so many had so much trouble trying to sit down. Because everyone needed to get shots. Rabies. And I like, uh, and that line where Gordon's, you know, it's old Gordon's narration, is like, four of Brandon's men were hospitalized with broken bones. Pratt, who Batman had punched through a brick wall, suffered from five broken ribs and internal bleeding. And I was just like, he got off light. And what I loved was that uh, that Batman, you know, he escaped 
got to got to a men's clothing store, bought a three piece suit, and left the money on the on the counter. Well, it's Batman. <laughs> yeah. Spider Man would have just you know broke open into like a Salvation Army drop box and put on whatever the hell was inside, regardless of how and it then, looked. And then in in a paper bag over his head. Oh yeah. Uh, and wearing the Fantastic Four jammies. But to well, me, I think the big strength of this was again. This wasn't one story. This was two stories. This was Bruce Wayne, the boy who had everything and was throwing it away, and Jim Gordon, who had lost everything and was slowly getting it back. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like you said, like, Selena Kyle is barely in here. You know, we get this very bare-bone introduction to, like, you know, Sarah Essen, who Gordon has. Like, did they actually do it, or is it just him making out with her the whole time? No, they. It was an affair. Yeah, but that's again. That's like what I said earlier about how you're only given so much, but you're you're, you're given so little, but you're given so much at the same time in terms of like you know characters' history and all that. You know, again, you don't need to see. Not like today, if they did this story today about you know Gordon cheating on his wife, you, it would have been like the end of Catwoman number one, <laughs> practically. Yeah. But this one, it's a lot more subtle, which is one of the best things about this thing. Is like, even the big bits, it's so subtle. Some of the things that happen, like the introduction of Selena Kyle, Harvey Dent shows up, you know, stuff like that. Well, and, even Joker at the very end, just like uh, with Batman Begins again. I mean, man, they borrowed so much from it. It wasn't the Joker; it was just the card. But it's the implication of what's coming, you know. To kind of paraphrase a Doctor Who quote, you know, the oncoming storm, that sort of thing. That, you know, so let's face it, if you describe Batman as a force of nature, well, the Joker is that and more. They which, are, they're the flip sides of each other. Yeah. And w- when you get into the last issue of the story where they have the uh, drug dealer who Gordon is trying to get in order to pin, like he wants to get him to turn on Flass and then take out Flash to get the lobe and all that. And they have that scene where, you know, Batman goes in, you know, and you, again, subtlety, you see Batman pick the window lock, go inside. He's kicked the drug dealer's ass through like a plate glass coffee table. The his lawyer just left. She's, are you all right? And just the look on his face, I'm fine. Yeah. <laughs> just like all wide eyed. And this dude in a Dracula cape who just, messed him up and what my love is also is also that the dialogue is 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 bullets can't hurt me but i know pain and sometimes i like to share pain with people like you and and this drug dealer got so spooked he immediately caught the deal refused refused every time anyone you know they you know they tried to kill him twice in prison and he's still like no i'm still going to testify no i don't want to <laughs> Yeah, criminals are a cowardly and superstitious lot. Yeah, but, okay, just to and kind of skip over to the animated piece of Drek that yeah. bears this comic's name. While this is one of the best sequences of dialogue in the comic, now, Ben McKenzie, who did Bruce Wayne slash Batman in the animated film, I, I think he's a pretty decent actor. I like him on the cop show Southland a lot. You know, he really shines there. But his narration in the movie was so flat and like there was narration. I thought that there, from what I remember, there was barely any narration. Well, you know what I mean. It's just his voiceover work for you know Bruce Wayne Batman. It's just so flat and lifeless. And 
even when he did the the scene where he busts into like the Romans dinner party and Commissioner Loeb's there and he's like, "You've eaten your fill." Like it's it's a it's a very good line for Batman, but he could not pull that off. And my ears, I can feel my ears trying to fold in on themselves when I watch this movie and I hear that line (laughs) because he just doesn't. Sometimes I know, uh, sometimes I share it. Like it just, it's so bad. It I mean, makes this... you long for Christian Bale. Oh God, I'd love swear to me. Yeah, I'd sooner listen to the you know, gravel lungs there than anything doing this line. And something, something to to get really clear is when you say the Roman, you're talking about Carmine Falcone, not yeah. not Roman Sionis, who's a completely different mob Roman. lord. Yeah, he he's got some skin problems, as I'm told. But yeah, no, well, it's actually, a... actually Carmine has some too. I mean, yeah. Um, but with the the Falcone, like the only Batman stories that I'm aware of that he's in, he's in Year One, he's in The Long Halloween, and that's about it. I mean, you know, they use him in Batman Begins, but I don't recall ever really hearing of the character in any of the Batman comics proper after this. Well, he was a non-issue after basically Year One. Yeah. yeah, he was defeated. He was taken out. Well, the, someone else fills the vacuum, but he is no longer a player. A big part of the message is when is the thing is traditional traditional gangs and traditional mobsters pretty much went the way they, the way of the dodo once Batman showed up because Batman scared them away, and that's when all of a sudden all the all the masks start showing up. Yeah, I just I thought you because know, the guy is like you know this Godfather you know Don Corleone type of character. You think. He would have been become like a major player. Well, it depends on who you ask. I mean, Loeb did try to keep on bringing him back, even if he is dead or incapacitated in some form. If that uh, a good example is is there's a lot of not so subtle hinting that Selena Kyle's father is Carmine Falcone. Yeah. Uh, that that is if if you've read uh, the that uh, Loeb. Uh, you know, Catwoman Long Holiday graphic novel, which was some of Loeb's better work, but at the same time, it's it's not really that fantastic, yeah. in my opinion. Uh, have you read it? Not for not for ages. I don't. No, but, I can't say. But like Sorry. I said, the the old the old style mobsters. As as soon, as soon as you have people like the Joker showing up, it's it's like okay, forget this. Let's let's move somewhere else. Yeah. Bloodhaven's nice at this time of year. <laughs> but I mean, it was such a, yeah, um, there was such a rich depth that it was a well that uh, Nolan could go to, not just for <laughs> Batman Begins, but for uh, Dark Knight as well. Yes. I mean, the ending of Dark Knight with uh, Gordon's son, that was the ending of year one. Yes. Not with Two-Face, but uh, the uh, kidnapping of uh, Gordon's son. Yeah. yeah family but yeah it's the same thing and when you spoke earlier about like the whole leonardo da vinci flying machine that even makes an appearance here yes it does in in the origin where you know gordon goes to visit uh bruce wayne and then he tells his wife you know honey i've been cheating on you and alfred makes that line it's like i suppose you'll take up flying next like that fellow in metropolis and the look on bruce wayne he's like hey and yeah, of course, you know, it's it's a full flying rig with with struts and everything that you know, no memory cloth stuff yet. Yeah. 
but the but thing that the, I have to the thing I have to say is as soon as Batman Begins showed up, that has been you know the cape being a gliding method has been in multiple you know it has been sort of retconned into continuity and I think it's a welcome addition because when when you look at someone like Bruce Wayne Batman, you look at you look at him as a very logical being. Why would he have why would he have such a huge cape? And yeah. oh, it's a glider yeah. too. Perfect. Actually, although I, it's not the first time that's shown up in film, so it was actually I think the best explanation for the cape, other than you know to make it look like wings, was um, in Captain Adam, and I, I wish I could remember who was writing at the time. But when he lost his powers, he was being trained by Batman, and the whole cape was for misdirection. I mean, you keep that thing swirling around people, you're not going to know where the cape is and where you are. So yeah, it, as a I and mean, then of course uh, with weights in the tips of the cape to use as a sap. I mean, again, there, it actually came up with a logical reason for it other than just, you know, it's a glider. Uh-huh. I like the glider. I thought the glider was a little bit much, you know, I mean, they've had bat gliders before. You now they've had yeah. a bat whirly gig before. That's uh, not, not the whirly bat. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, it was, it was, it, it was the gyro bat. Yeah. But I, I think cause, one of, like I said before, I love this story because it's so it's so steeped in detective noir and pulp fiction, and the the shot. As much as I like the kind of callback to you know the origins of Batman in the comics and how you know Bob Kane and Bill Finger were you know inspired by Leonardo da Vinci's work, this is the first solid step taking it out of the noir Batman noir universe and towards Batman the superhero kind of universe and. Mm. At least in this story, because I mean, before this, like even when he still steals the bike and all that, it's still very grounded in reality. And this is that first kind of step out of that comfort zone in a way, in my eyes, just all of a sudden he's got like this flying gig. And the next thing you know, he's going to have a car with a jet rocket engine or something. So uh, you've read Star. <laughs> but hey, uh, want some lemonade. <laughs> oh, God damn it. Um <laughs> But but really, this this is one of the more fantastic uh, stories about Batman because it's so grounded to the reality and and yeah, it doesn't touch to every single bit of Batman noir or Batman mythos because Batman and Gotham City itself has just been steeped in mythos. I mean, that it's just you know you know to talk about the mythos of. Uh, Gotham City is in in the Arkham Asylum and and all these different things is just amazing and you know if, to go back to it one of the things I am actually really disappointed about it with with the with the anime thing other than the the quality of animation being bad the the, the voice, voice work voice being acting, the yeah. voice acting being bad is is they didn't take a, a a chance to to really showcase one of the funniest things in it which is uh the the former commissioner Loeb actually had an obsession with Disney memorabilia. <laughs> oh yeah. And I mean the year one animated thing, like I said, I mean to me one of the great things about it wasn't just the rawness of Matt Kelly's art. Um because it looked like it was limited pencils and heavy inks on it, but the limited color palette and of course they used the full color palette for the animated thing because people can't handle a limited palette in animation. God and forbid. It, just, it, lose, it loses everything. I mean, it's like going through and colorizing Casablanca. It just it doesn't work. Turner. <laughs> but, I'm a, 
that's the way again like the one thing with the the limited like you said with the little limited color yeah tom and the one of the other things is not just the limited use of color but the really good use of shadow in a lot of sequences like where thing to me actually looked i mean not not like sepia tone but like faded photographs where they may have once had the bright colors of this but because of the time that's gone through the color has faded you're brought down to just the muted tones that you had there and this was i I, I mean year one used that beautifully oh yeah I, I, I love how they get towards the end like where the roman son kid tries to kidnap gordon's wife and child and you know he gordon's there and just the whole kind of almost mexican standoff in the garage between the thugs and gordon yeah you know, and, and, and and they try to they try to cow him into submission what does he do he just he just blasts the bastard with a gun yeah and again what, one of the best things that they do in the comic versus one of the worst things they do in the animated movie is that in the animated movie they draw out the bridge sequence where Gordon, you know, he shoots Bruce in the chest, who, you know, he's wearing his Kevlar, and tears off one hand riding the bike, the other hand, you know, trying to gun down the uh, mobster's car, and it all happens very, it seems to happen very quick in the comic, but it's, you know, like I said, it's not subtle, but it's bare-boned enough that you know what's going on. Right, you have imagination. Uh, You're reading it fast because you want to know what happens next. So in your mind, it's happening fast. Yeah, the art carries the action very well. Where you know, Gordon shoots out the tire, the car crashes, he runs up. You see the mops, uh, whatever Falcone's son, come out the back with you know Jimmy Junior in the in one hand, knife in the other, and you get like the two shots of you know Bruce climbing up and then diving off after you know Junior when he goes over the railing and then. Gordon and the thug go on and they have, I love that line, you know, he's, you don't know exactly how bad Gordon's eyes are without his glasses. And and this just kind of goes to the whole thing that Gordon probably does know who Batman is. Yes. You know, like he's like, you know, I'm practically blind without my glasses. You better go. Cause you see in the art, he's not, he's like what? Three feet away from Batman. Even with no, the he knows, face. he knows like he, he just doesn't care. He doesn't care who Batman is because because the thing is he gets that, that Batman is needed. Yes, and uh, it's not the hero that they want, but it's the hero they deserve. Yeah, and I love like you said how they end Batman Begins. I love the last three panels of the comic. You know, the Gordon's narration talking about you know the Romans, uh, you know the Romans at war with his sister over the Empire. They're grooming some new guy to be the commissioner you know he's got promoted to captain you know talks about the marriage counselor and i love just the last three panels where he talks about there's a real panic someone's threatened to poison the reservoir calls himself the joker i've got a friend coming by to help should just i love that should be here any minute and then scene yeah it doesn't need to show the meeting because you know by then it's going to work out i mean yeah I mean, so many people, different people, tried to revisit the beginning of the of the Batman Commissioner Gordon or the Jim Gordon relationship, and so many people don't seem to quite understand why it's not why they can't you know bottle lightning uh, because because the thing is this it's uh, in one of the best additions that uh, that Nolan added to the mythos was that Gordon was 
the beat cop that that helped a young Bruce Wayne helped console him when he when right after the shooting. Yeah. And I think that was one of the best additions to the mythos that was I believe that was Nolan who first added that to, to the mythos. Am I right? I believe so. I know that Dini added that into add that added that into Arkham Asylum, the game. Right. Like I said, year one had Gordon coming from Chicago. Right. Um so yeah, I do believe that that was one of the first ones. Yeah, so it's it, it really is a welcome addition to it because because then you can kind of see that Gordon himself sort of takes almost that not exactly fatherly role, but almost like that fatherly role as well, even just for an instant in young Bruce's life. Yeah, a fraternal, and and that, that and after year one, um, especially in one of the um, issues of No Man's Land when. Gotham was isolated from everything. It showed that Bruce always looked up to Jim Gordon, possibly, I mean, as a father figure, if not not really his father. I mean, oh, he yes. was someone who he admired. And like I said, I mean, he he considered him family. So in the No Man's Land where he where Gordon felt betrayed uh from Batman disappearing back in Nightfall and had the imposter Batman and you could see the rifts that were forming there and what was needed to heal him up. It well, showed yeah. the relationship between these two strong personalities. Because mm-hmm. they had that in, in No Man's Land. They have that one issue where he, Batman goes to towards the end of it. You know, he goes to visit Gordon. Gordon Takes off his around, mask and, and Gordon he's like, refuses. I, no. Yeah, he's like, I don't need to know who you are. And and that's one of the greatest thing overall in the you know pre fifty two you know the real DC comics in my opinion uh, universe the whole they never clearly answer the question does Gordon know you know exactly exactly you know you don't need that answered you also don't need to know what the force is but that's another rant altogether <laughs> well and um, well look at uh, Batman the animated series. Uh, God, I wish I could remember the episode name, but it was the one where Batgirl dies. Over the edge. Over the edge. And, I mean, Gordon knows. He's always known. He just never admitted it to himself. Well, right? no. well the thing is, if, as, soon as, he, as soon as he says it, he has to commit to it. And as soon as he commits to it, he has to act on it. Exactly. I, I, he knows Batman is a needed force. He's a necessary evil. You know, he's not following. He's not the legal system, but he is a justice system. Absolutely. And in an award over the edge, he thinks that Batman is to blame for his daughter's death in more ways than one. And at that point, all lines have been crossed, and he can go after Bruce Wayne because now he has that excuse. So. Yes, yeah. and uh, something something else to talk about is is you know the the post crisis uh, bat continuity has had some bumps here and there. I mean, you know, we talk about the excellent year one. I mean, we have to of course talk about its um, follow up. Even year two. I hear the sighs in your voice. Year one was I mean almost a masterpiece. Year two needs more cowbell. <laughs> it it just it it never even came close to measuring up. I'm I'm glad JT got that. 
Yeah, and just and just coming all back now, like the year to fear the Reaper. I was just like, oh, that has got to be the single dumbest supervillain costume I've ever seen. Actually, uh, he was he was a vigilante. No supervillain vigilante. Just if you're not Batman, you. Well, the thing is, it doesn't make sense because he has to team up with Joe Chill to find the Reaper. What? Uh, he he's freaking the best detective on the planet. Why does he need to find Joe Chill to help him? Uh, and, and the thing that I always that always bothers me is is knowing. And the thing is, it doesn't matter who killed the Waynes because the Waynes were killed by you know ultimately by an indifferent system of of of, of building crime that. You know, it's it. You know, who who pulled the trigger is is not, you know, as important as the fact that the whole system's busted and needs to be fixed. You know what I mean? I mean, Joe Chill in, in himself is not that interesting, and I've rarely read anything that made Joe Chill interesting. Well, the issue again, this was pre-crisis. The issue where Bruce Wayne finds Joe Chill, and they used elements of this in the uh, Batman: Brave and the Bold animated episode. I think was uh, again a terrific piece of writing because it made him. What at what point is he a force of vengeance, and at what point is he a force of justice? And that's just, I mean, that's the fine line that Batman, Superman doesn't have that problem. Wonder Woman doesn't really have that problem. No other hero other than Batman has that problem. But where the fine line is, yeah. And I yeah. swear, worst comic book, worst costume. I mean, uh, ugh. And I can't believe they brought the character back in a way, but uh, the wrath, oh. the anti-Batman, the wrath, and scorn. <laughs> you know, you know, I, I have a problem with this character. You know, the wrath and scorn. It's it's. It was it, a bad idea when they came out with it. It was a one-issue character. It was a bad idea then. That's why they never did anything with it. I know. I know. And people tried to, to make it work. I mean, the craft man actually had the wrath show up with with the, with with the with the with, with actually a sob story about how Batman is is, is what or craft man, I should correct myself, is 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 making it tough for 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 hardworking criminals to make money. It's like gee, is this supposed to be a sob story? Because I'm not buying it. See, and I can't help but wonder if uh, DC is like, oh, we really like the Wrath character, but he's not nearly anti-Batman enough. I know. Let's give him a magical MacGuffin helmet and call him Prometheus. And now that you thought of that, you can't deny it, Ben. I have to say the only Prometheus appearance I liked was in World War III. Where Oh, and Batman is like I've reprogrammed your helmet with Stephen Hawking <laughs> Heltra said, Were you cheating? And Batman replies now every time I read that now I I hear Charlie Sheen winning yeah. <laughs> Or you could at least in my rewrite would have been it's like duh, I'm Batman <laughs> But yeah, no that's Prometheus, like I said, he, he's he's like the version two of the Wrath that doesn't completely suck, and then he 
that's anyway back on topic before I go. But but actually actually one of the best takes of Joe Chill himself was a story by Ty, Ty Templeton called Fear Itself. This was in the Batman Adventures comic book line. Different continuity, of course, but uh, the story goes that Chill was in prison for about you know 15, 20 years for an unrelated crime, and the 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 fact that he killed Bruce Wayne's parents has haunted him because because now Bruce Wayne's an adult, you know, you know, in charge of a multi-billion-dollar corporation, one of the most powerful men on the planet, and he has this fear that Bruce Wayne's going to come for him one day, so he starts hallucinating seeing bruce wayne's face everywhere and finally finally you know at the end of the story you know he 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 you know, batman confronts him on a rooftop for some unrelated thing and uh joe chill somehow in a scuffle pulls off batman's cow sees bruce wayne jumps off the building and kills himself in fear and then and then someone asks batman who who is that and he's like i have no idea uh, no, my favorite use of Joe Chill goes back to, well, it it, it finds its roots in uh, some of the Dick Sprang comics of the 1950s, but it was perfectly portrayed in an episode of Batman Brave and the Bold, Neo Chill of the Night, where Batman is finally tracked down the guy that killed his parents, you know, and the Phantom Stranger and the Spectre are basically trying to pull him one way towards justice or vengeance and they have that moment where he's tracked down joe chill who's like this weapons dealer to the criminal elite and you know he's great he's busted up this weapons deal and he's got chill trapped in this office like how do you know how do you know and it's like because i was there i am bruce wayne he takes off his mask and then chill runs outside it's like he tells the joker the penguin mr freeze catwoman all these guys i created batman and they, well, they fuck the guy up. But it's just, yeah. I love that moment of where, you know, he starts rattling off, you killed Thomas and Martha Wayne. And, you know, the look on children, like, how can you know this? You weren't there. And he was Batman. I was there. You know, you, you almost expect him or Diedrich Bader start, you know, I am vengeance. I am the knight. You know, right. just yelling like that. And I mean. For the record, I'm there. Uh, other things about that episode which need to stand out. One, that was Paul Dini who wrote that episode. Would probably one of the best of the episodes. Yeah. Yes. And, and the, the fan- voice of the Phantom Stranger and the Spectre were voiced by Batman and the Joker, Kevin Conroy and Mark Hamill. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh, and didn't uh, didn't the wasn't the Spectre in the cold intro for that episode where he turns Professor Milo into a statue made of cheese? Yeah, some, yeah. That's a <laughs> of what the Spectre used to do is things like that. Well, the Spectre like that, had that... unlimited power. He he was he was the vengeance of God. Well, yeah. in the beginning he wasn't, but that gets off on another tangent. But uh, and anyways, uh, like I said, it's uh, have any of you ever read this issue of Batman Adventures that I, that I talked about? No, I haven't. I just love I, I just love the irony. Because the thing is, this is, is his his fear was well founded. Because think of it, it's like it's like if you uh, you know you 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 kill you kill you kill someone's parents, and then twenty years later, after you get out of the slammer, you find out oh this is the most powerful guy in town. You you start to lose it, and then all of a sudden, the the, the most scary vigilante in the world finds you on a rooftop. You pull off his mask. Oh my goodness, it's that guy. <laughs> it's, yeah. 
And, and to Batman, this is all incidental. He doesn't he doesn't have an idea that this is who Joe Chill is. It's just yeah. some dude. <laughs> no, I mean I, I like it, to me like I said, Brave and the Bold, and before that, the uh, untold story of Batman, uh, where he got to confront Joe Chill. I mean, that was the first bit of closure that they actually ha- had for Bruce Wayne in any of the stories. Yeah, because the thing is, it's not like it's not like Batman could really stop once Joe Chill is out of the equation. I mean, <clears throat> I mean, Batman Begins shows that because Joe Chill was out of the equation before his world's tour even began. Boy, I had forgotten some of this stuff about the episode Chill of the Night. Some of the other voices in it. Lou Moxon was voiced by Richard Maul, uh, Bull Shannon from Night Court, and Two-Face from the animated series. Oh, yes. Thomas and Martha Wayne were voiced by Adam West and Julie Newmar, the 1960s Batman and Catwoman. Oh, that was Julie Newmar? I didn't know that. Yeah. Uh, Zatanna, in this episode, was voiced by Jennifer Hale, who also voiced her in Justice League Unlimited. I mean... Well, Paul Dini wrote it. Of course, Satana showed up. Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, just getting a lot of these people for this. Uh, I mean, people who talk about Brave and the Bold. And, come on, this is – a lot of this is, yes, older Batman, 50s and 60s stuff. And, granted, uh, um, the uh, uh, Untold Legend of Batman series was late 70s, early 80s? I'd have to check on uh, that. Yeah, it was uh, just – actually, I was just looking that up here. Uh, July, September, 1980, three-issue yeah. mini, which was one of my favorite. I had uh, the third issue of that. They put it out on those old uh, read-along book and cassette deals they had back in the 80s. Yep. I used to steal that from my brother, God, and I used to steal that from him all the time. Just not even listen to the story, which was great, but to like kind of read along and listen to it, because that, that's one of my all-time favorite Batman stories, where Batman's losing his damn mind. And it's like a look back at the history and everything like that. Uh, and another thing Batman. to keep in mind is is the Joe Chill origin and the Joe Chill story that was in Brave and the Bold is actually uh, is actually hauntingly familiar to the Bill Finger Bob Kane original story that they told of when you know the exact same thing happened where where Joe Chill after Batman confronts himself reveals himself as Bruce Wayne Joe Chill flees and goes to goes to Goes to other thugs and say, "Help, help! I created Batman, and now he's after me." And then his own thugs turn on him. Yeah, and because what that was based on, I'm just trying to find like what that was, what issue that was, because that was out of like a 1950s. I think the art no, it, was, that it was, was it was it was a 1948 uh, Batman number 47. It was that uh, Bill Finger art or Dick Sprang? Because I I remember Dick Sprang art in that. I think it's Dick Sprang by 1948. It, no, actually, no. 1948. That was that was still that was still Bill Finger. I'm just gonna look at Batman 47. You said 48. Oh, Batman. No, 19. It was 47 in 48. Okay. And I'm like sure I said, I'm a, yeah. It was it was. It says Bob Kane is penciler, but I, we all know around 48 it was Bill Finger. Yeah, when I finally read about, you know, like the whole, you know, Batman, like who really created Batman, all that sort of thing, it's, uh, it's not as complicated. Well, not that it's complicated, it's just, you know, because for what I knew of Bob Kane growing up and, you know, having, you know, Batman and me and, 
you know, just kind of this kind of idolizing him a bit as a kid growing up and, you know, really finding out what the real, the kind of the real deal is there. It's just, it kind of took me out of my fandom a little bit, but, uh, well, like I said, like I said, it was Bill Fink. Yeah. Like I said, it's, you know, around that point it was, it was, you, 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 you really couldn't argue it was Kane doing the pencils anymore. Yeah. I mean, it's. I, I don't know the last time confirmed Kane did the the pencils. I mean, there there's 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 been arguments. Um, yeah, that this uh, is the image I was talking about earlier. I mean, Tom, would you would you happen to have a would you would you happen to have a, um, a an idea of when it was the last time it was Bob Kane really doing the pencils? Um. Well, I mean, depending upon. The, what you listen to, I mean, it was really never Kane that was doing it. Kane was the writer, and he came up with some sketches with it. Uh, but common, I mean, there are those who believe that it was Bill Finger who designed the costume and who did the art early on. I mean, there are those who believe that Finger deserves co-credit on it, just like uh, Jack Kirby or Steve Ditko. I would argue that. I would definitely argue that because there's so much of the mythos that that. We know it's not just one man. Yeah. Well, I mean, remember, when we talk about so much of the mythos, this is 50 years later. Well, 75 years later, excuse me. Um, so, I mean, there are a lot of people who have contributed to the era of Batman and all the different versions of Batman, uh, which, to me, I mean, I think probably the best one of them for the modern version uh, was year one. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. There were a couple other people who helped define the mythos after that. Uh, Bruce Tim and Paul Dini definitely had a hand in it. Uh, love him and hate him. Chuck Dixon did solidify a lot of the Bat family concepts post-crisis. I mean, in pre-crisis, we had Denny O'Neill, who became the editor of the Batman series. Uh, and, of course, Neil Adam, their run on it. Denny O'Neill actually is, is one of the more interesting figures in bat mythology to me because because we're looking at this guy who who has really helped create a lot of characters and mythos of not just batman but of gotham city itself i mean good, good example is uh, it wasn't until the 90s that someone really sat down and went okay what is the mythos of gotham city because gotham city is as much a character of batman as batman yeah there really was no definition for it uh Except for, I mean, you had Gotham City, you had downtown Gotham, where Wayne Enterprises was, which for a while was the Batcave, uh, and you had Arkham Asylum. Yeah. There really wasn't that much definition outside, and of course on the outskirts was um, stately Wayne Manor. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there, there were the, the, lots of the old mythos to it, like uh, like uh, there, was other, there were other books, like there was, you know, Arkham Asylum... Uh, what's it called? A, a strange uh, house in a. You know the you know the graphic novel I'm talking about. Uh, that well, the only one. That's a serious called... house on a serious earth. Is that the Grant Morrison, Morrison one? The Grant Morrison one, yes. Nineteen eighty-nine. That really that? helped. That really helped paint a lot of the mythos of Arkham Asylum itself. Arkham Asylum, the name of source, of course, being taken from uh, from H.P. Lovecraft. And, uh, and, but what I'm talking about specifically about the character of Gotham itself is, you know, you know, Denny O'Neill 
creating characters like Cyrus Pinkney, the architect that designed Gotham City in its original creation, and how he knew the original, you know, back in the days of, of Gotham being built as a modern city, he knew, you know, he knew and was friends with Solomon Wayne and and Amadeus Arkham, and it's sort of sort of interesting seeing seeing like these three characters who sort of created Gotham City, you know? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I always loved about the character of Gotham City is how it took, it didn't take any of the middle bits, it took the brightest and the darkest parts of two of America's major cities, like Chicago and New York. Well, actually, actually, the thing is, the thing is, is Gotham City was New York City, because back in the old day, Gotham City, you know, back in the 20s, New York was called the Gotham City. It was also called the Metropolis. You know, so. It was also called the Metropolis, yes. Yeah. Okay. But, I mean, that, that's what I love is because I, as I grew up and I take a look at those two cities, you know, the, the architecture of both and how it just basically this omni- – not omniscient, but uh, just kind of like the – Did we lose AT? I think we did. Um, but yeah, I mean, the architecture that they used, most notably after the uh, uh, first Batman film, and I'm not talking the Adam West one, uh, the Tim Burton one, where they really went with the gothic look for Gotham. Yes. Uh, before then, in drawn in the comic books, Gotham was a city. It didn't have any of this far out architecture. After the Tim Burton one, they did go a lot into the, uh, I don't want to say ridiculous architecture that they had in the Burton one, but they did give it more of a distinct style versus Metropolis versus real, real cities of Chicago or New York. Yeah, the thing is, you look at you look at year one and you see lots of Chicago in it. I mean, yeah, I imagine you see more Chicago than I do, Tom. But <laughs> well, I mean, you see a lot of Chicago. I mean, remember, uh, it was filmed in. Uh, Batman Begins was filmed partially in Chicago as well. Yes. They, I mean, it was intentionally developed to be like a Chicago. Because yes. you know, everybody knows Chicago is better than New York. Well, I thought you were going to say something about the crime rate, but... Uh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> and the corruption, the widespread corruption, senators and stuff like that, and presidents, oh. and... <laughs> yeah. And it, it all being Jerry Ryan's fault, but... <laughs> <laughs> oh, don't even get me started. Don't even get me started. But like I said, it's like not I said, Ryan Fault, it's the Chicago Tribune who are corrupt as anything else as well. But like I said, what I really love about it is, like I said, that's you know, when when you have people like Denny O'Neill going back and creating these characters like Cyrus Pinkney and Solomon Wayne and 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 taking you know the Amadeus Arkham character and putting them all together saying, saying these are the founders of Gotham city. And, right. and but, I mean, since we've gotten completely off track, let me go also go ahead and say that, uh, remember Batman wasn't the only hero that Gotham city had. We're talking about Alan Scott. Talking about Alan Scott. Yes. So, I mean, we had a lot of stuff there going on there too, but, uh, yeah, I think we lost JT and yeah, I, I think I pretty much yeah. talked out uh, year one. I mean, it's, if you get a chance to buy the compilation or even better, buy the original comics, um, do so. I mean, it's a beautifully done series with the exception of Prostitute Kyle. Uh, it, <laughs> it really does go through and I mean, it's beautiful art, terrific writing. 
uh, beautiful coloring. So Absolutely. I mean, it, it had, out of, I mean, because post-crisis, you had all those different retelling of the origins. You had Man of Steel from John Byrne. You had, as we talked last time, um, George Perez's Wonder Woman. And you had Year One, which wasn't so much a retelling as uh, slight modifications to – it didn't recreate anything. It just added to it, mm-hmm. except for Selena Kyle. But uh, but one thing I have to note is my copy of the graphic novel, the compilation, has the cover printed backwards and upside down. So when you when you when you when I actually open it, it looks like I'm holding a comic book that's upside down. Well, I know maybe it was the printer's way of saying "help us." You know, where you have the flag upside down, it's a signal for uh, assistance. Sure. It was saying, "We hate what they did to Selena Kyle. Help us." Well, the thing is, I've looked this up, and I can't find any note of this. I want to know if I actually have a rare item here. I, like I said, I mean, probably. I mean, misprints, uh, depending upon how many of them there were. I, I, I really don't think it would be – it would be more than a standard corrected issue, but, yeah, probably not much. I'm not looking to sell it, obviously, but I, I'm just curious if I actually have a rare item. <laughs> but well, uh, With year one itself, like I said, I mean, it is a rare item – Unto itself. Yes. Yeah. So let's wrap this up, and uh, I'll see if I can. Uh, yeah, I, I can. I'll see if I can sort of compile JT's final thoughts, but I think he already gave them. But so this is your host Ben. And from Nine Ten Comics, I'm Thomas Revore. And we're saying good night.